You are now listening to a Fit Plus Love production. We all need a life plan, but I think one of the secrets to that is making sure that you're prepared to have your life's plan upended and that you look for signals and signs that something's calling you, even though it might not have been on your conscience. That was Marianne Gill-Martin. This is Marnie Salop. Thanks for tuning into my podcast, Marnie on the Move. Each week, I will be inviting interesting, innovative movers and shakers to join me on the show and share their story. You will discover and hear from thought leaders, experts, influencers, and entrepreneurs from the worlds of wellness, sports, beauty, fitness, fashion, and more. Marnie on the Move will feature an eclectic mix of people I know, work with, and think are generally doing cool things. On each episode, I sync up with my guests about life, career, and training, and showcase their expertise and story. Hello, welcome, and welcome back to the Marnie on the Move podcast. I'm your host, Marnie Salop. Today on the podcast, I'm syncing up with Marianne Gilmartin, founder and CEO of Mag Partners the urban real estate company with decades of experience developing impactful, iconic, large-scale projects, including, most recently, the Ruby in Chelsea at 243 West 28th Street. It is a beautiful 480-unit apartment building with an outdoor pool and lots more. We talk about it on the podcast. Another exciting venture MAG Partners is developing is the Baltimore Peninsula with business partner Kevin Plank, founder of Under Armour, which is a multi-million square foot development portfolio that includes three multifamily rental buildings, a ground up commercial development in Manhattan, and a master plan redevelopment in Baltimore. Prior to launching MAG Partners, Marianne was CEO at Forest City Ratner, where she worked for 23 years. Marianne pioneered and spearheaded the development of the globally renowned Barclays Center in Brooklyn, the New York Times building in Times Square, New York by Gary, which was completed in 2011, and this 896-unit building was dubbed Frank Gary's love letter to New York, was the tallest residential building in the Western Hemisphere and a catalyst for the transformation of Lower Manhattan into a 24-7 mixed-use community. Marianne and I sync up about where her career in real estate began, how she got into development, what the landscape was like when she started and how it has evolved, and what she loves about her career. We talk about several of the game-changing ventures that she's working on and has pioneered thus far in her career, what it is like to be on the forefront of innovation and a founder and entrepreneur in the world of real estate. I get the inside scoop on the exercise and wellness fueling Marianne for success. Her awesome family and fur babies, books she is reading, shows she is watching, and her favorite fitness and fashion gear and apparel. I hope you enjoy our conversation. If you like what you hear, leave us a review on Apple. It's easy. Go to the app wherever you get your podcasts. Click on Marnie on the Move. Click on five stars and click on the very tiny letters that say leave a review tell us what you love also share this conversation on your social channels and tag us we'll tag you back now on to our conversation marianne thank you so much for being on the podcast today it's great to be here you are an innovator a pioneer one of the most visionary people in the world of real estate on the real estate landscape And while many of the developments you have developed are built in New York, they are also globally renowned. 
Where did your journey and career into real estate begin? Let's take it back a few years. Well, thank you. Again, great to be here. And if we wind it back, we'll go back a couple of decades. And I begin by talking about serendipity and the fact that we all need a life plan. But I think one of the secrets to that is making sure that you're prepared to have your life's plan upended and that you look for signals and signs that something's calling you, even though it might not have been on your conscience. So I was headed to law school, was told about a fellowship called the New York City Urban Fellows Program under then Mayor Koch. It was the really only recruitment tool that the city of New York had, but it was a pretty powerful one where they could try to convince young people to take a stint in public service before heading off to the private sector. And the requirement was that you be enrolled and matriculated in a graduate program. But when you signed on to this program, if you were awarded the program, you had to spend a full-time experience um, and postpone your, your studies. So I applied for a summer version of that and an academic year, and I won both. And I was able to um, participate in this amazing program where you interview with commissioners inside of the city of New York, and they upsell you on why you should want to work for them. Reason being that you're a stipend scholar. Right. You don't come from a budget. This was post-fiscal crisis. Nobody had any ab ability to hire uh, new people. And so urban fellows were a hot commodity. So I stepped into government, again, pure serendipity, won these fellowships and thought, let me check it out. And then they counseled you inside of the fellowship to really use the time to explore things you weren't familiar with. And so on my path to law school to fight for the rights of juveniles in the justice system, I took a turn uh, into areas that were unfamiliar to me. And I interviewed with all of these agencies and I rolled into the Public Development Corporation, which uh, had, a, had a president, not a commissioner. It had a board of directors, carpeting, air conditioning, summer of 19... 86, the city was a dump. I had gone to Ford. I know what it's like to be hardcore, but we're talking like the physical plant of the city of New York uh, does did not look like it looked in the post-Bloomberg years, right? The yeah. buildings were just... I would interview with the agencies of my liking and they would say, we don't have any room here in the office. We're going to put your desk in the hallway. Uh, it'll get about 100 degrees in the peak of summer, but we have the rodent problem under control. You shouldn't see any rats. And I was wow. like, wow. That's pretty rough. So I went through this whole odyssey and then thought, I have two fellowships. So I'll take the summer, the hot summer in New York City, go where the air conditioning carpeting is, where those fancy people that talk about tall buildings and developers are. I'll check it out. And then in September, I'll get serious about my career and I'll go back to the world of law and juvenile justice. And it was in that uh, experience that summer that I realized I had economic development, real estate development in my veins. And I, I realized how much I loved it. I thought, how could a job be so full of variety, uh, complication and, and excitement? And it just really got me all fired up. And then when September came, I fulfilled my promise of interviewing yet again with all the different commissioners. And I came back to where I started, which was at the Public Development Corporation. And that really set in motion a seven-year career working on some of these uh, large public-private partnerships where I then had this epiphany that, geez, I could do the very same thing on the other side of working um, in the private sector with the government. And that began my private sector career at uh, Forest City. At Forest City, you worked on some really amazing projects. What was the first one that you worked on? So I was there for 23 years when I finished. I was the CEO. But when I began, I approached it very much as um, economic development from the other side of the table. 
And then as I got deeper into it, I became fascinated by how a building is put together, both in the physical form and what it takes to actually build a new building in a city like New York, whether it's the financing and the capital stack or the tenants themselves, the leasing and the marketing. So at Far City, it was a place where if you could dream it, you could defend it, you could probably do it. And so um, I had a really interesting arc of my career because the company was culturally at a point in time where we were doing a lot of really big, bold, aspirational things. And so I kind of jumped onto that bandwagon. And I think every builder, developer probably has a collection of buildings that become like children to them. But there's usually a standout kind of breakthrough project. And for me, it was the bid for the New York Times Commission, which is to be developer to the New York Times. That was huge. I remember when that building started being, that development started being put together. I mean, it was a big change for the world of publishing and media in New York because up until then, I think everything was on Madison Avenue. You know, World Trade area was not developed for Condé Nast or Meredith or any of those publishing companies. And the New York Times building was like a game changer in New York City for business. I think that's right, Morning. And I think one of the things I remember most is we were not supposed to win because we were this developer from Brooklyn. We had built on 42nd Street the massive retail project that I, I worked on with Madame Tussauds and AMC. But right. to build a world-class building for the Gray Lady in its namesake area called Times Square was something that, you know, Bruce Ratner said, Miriam, we're just not going to win. It's a waste of time. And I said, only five developers were invited. Like we have to chase this. And so I think the frame, it was like an object lesson in learning how to lose. And for me, it was an object lesson of, of, of the possibilities of winning. And so after what was a very well-run two month rigorous process on Valentine's day of the year 2000, um, we got the phone call that the Times had uh, had selected us. And again, it was, um, we really were not supposed to win. I think we were, we thought, you know, courtesy invite because we built this project right on 42nd Street and knew our business. But to the Times' credit, I think they ran a process that was all about meritocracy and all yeah. about the best that, that could partner with them and, and be their developer. That's amazing. And speaking of major shifts in New York City and the world of real estate, over the past few decades, what have you seen beyond the New York Times that have been some major, major shifts since you've been in this business for a couple decades? You know, and, and how have you seen these shifts evolve and how do you navigate in this world of real estate? I think I asked a lot of questions. Sorry. <laughs> I'll try to tackle all of them. Uh, I think a real estate developer, if, if anything, is really about being nimble. And I call it the great Rubik's Cube, you know, of, 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 of real estate to be a developer. Because if you need your life kind of all wrapped up in a, in a bow at the end of the day, this is not the business for you. Right. The faint art need not apply. And you really have to be comfortable with chaos and making order of chaos, making decisions, and recognizing that some of those decisions may seem like they could have gone differently in, in hindsight, but you gotta keep moving forward. And at the same time, it also has this unbelievable friction between a wild sense of urgency and a need to be patient because it takes so very long. So this all kind of came to me as I, as I, I built. And in the beginning of my career, I built rather commoditized buildings in Brooklyn. I then had the great fortune of being part of the New York Times team where I led a group of people through what was a seven year process where we hired a great Italian architect, Renzo Piano, 
once you go through that experience, there is no way to do the work of building and applying your craft the same anymore. And so first change for me was this idea that, that, that you could build beauty and you could deliver great value for investors, for partners, and for communities. And it wasn't at odds with the proposition and that commoditized real estate will make money in New York City, but it didn't have to be that. And there was this idea that if you hired a great architect, you could never afford it. And therefore your economics would be wrung out of it. I, I reject that. And I think the work I did from New York Times forward, Barclays Center, New York by Geary, they all demonstrated this thesis that beauty can be in the equation and the viability and the performance standard can still be met. And the community can be left with something that will be around for a very long time, but it will be a thing of lasting beauty and lasting quality. So that was the first observation that beauty matters and is possible in architects. The second is the role of community. I mean, the way we build now versus the way communities dealt with developers 25 years ago is very different. Um, they are part of a process. And if they're not, they will find their voice and they will become part of the process. And that is because it is appropriate. And of course you can't do um, anything bold and audacious by consensus. So there is always recognize it's not always a democracy, but when you land something in someone's community, they ought to have a voice. And so I think the role of community in development in, in the urban environment has shifted dramatically in the last 25 years and yeah. technologies to do with that, you know, the way in which we can monitor, participate, and voice our views is, is just much easier with technology and the internet. And I think that that's helped the end product and the way in which our business unfolds in, in, in the world of, of New York City real estate. Yeah. And I mean, speaking of economic development and community and bringing a project to fruition that has really been a major game changer in New York is you brought the Barclays Center to Brooklyn. So that's entertainment, it's sports, it's revitalizing the neighborhood. It's so many things. Talk to me about that project. So again, it was the great vision of Bruce Ratner that he would bring professional sports back to the borough of Brooklyn that really had never gotten over the loss of the Dodgers. I can say that what it ended up becoming was um, a battle between generations um, and between different types of communities because there were people that were super supportive of hoops, affordable housing, mm -hmm. and job creation. And then there were others that believed that the arena did not belong at the confluence of five of the most um, interesting, diverse, and culturally uh, important neighborhoods in New York City. And I mean, so there we were living down the block before. <laughs> I mean, Lori was living down the block and I visited, but it was crazy. I mean, that project is amazing. Did you visit? Now, I'm, I'm interested because I talk about the old Brooklyn versus the new Brooklyn. And, you know, there was so much going on in Brooklyn that even those of us that might have had a small part in its becoming don't really understand it. There was a rezoning that was supposed to bring a ton more of commercial space to the downtown Brooklyn area. And instead was um, the onset of the residential explosion and the idea that highly amenitized living in the borough of Brooklyn was possible. Whereas before that it was, you know, brownstones, pre-war buildings, had dry cleaning, you had to figure out a way to get to the dry cleaner because it couldn't get delivered to your house because you'd never catch up with it. And this idea that we building like high-rise multifamily buildings in Brooklyn when they just didn't exist became a 10-year evolution of Brooklyn becoming not uh, a place where people were 
embarrassed to say that they had a zip code, uh, an area code or a zip code that was Brooklyn, but a place where people started moving to the Upper East Side of Manhattan so they could save money, move to Brooklyn. And so, you know, I'm sure you were part of a a conversation around whether this was all good for Brooklyn or not. And I, what I'm proudest of relative to Barclays is that that arena lives, exists, and is a very, very good neighbor to the communities that surround it. And it didn't happen by accident. Like if you said, what's a day in the life of a developer in building Barclays, if you shadowed the developers that what the things we talked about day in and day out, quality of life, traffic, the subway access, how quickly the building cleared out after an event. These are things that have so much more to do with actual bricks and mortar, but make the difference between something that's a good community participant, um, you know, that that kind of adds value to the community experience versus takes away from it. And I'm going to finally say that the traffic issues and the traffic woes of Brooklyn today, I do not believe are because of Barclays. I think it has to do with a lot of the the uh, the infrastructure improvements that are underway, where every road is being ripped up. There's yeah. a lot of development construction, but Barclays really is transit-oriented development where people primarily get there by mass transit, and if they don't, it's because they're foolish and they haven't done it before, yeah. or they're just healthy attachment to their vehicle. Yes, I think it's amazing. I mean, I I've lived in New York my entire life, so I've seen the evolution of this city and the development of Brooklyn, and it's absolutely incredible. The work that you've done at Forest City Ratner and just throughout your career has really been game-changing for this city. I think everybody knows Barclays Center. They know the New York Times. They know all the work that you've done. Well, you hit on the third third strand of, of what's really changed, which is this idea of what makes a good neighborhood in New York. And it's such a dramatically different and far more interesting conversation today because these neighborhoods that um, used to be um, places people didn't want to go. And because some of us um, ventured to go there, I always say follow the food, the culture, and the music, and that's going to be the next place in New York City. And then we as developers have a responsibility not to gentrify it in a way where those folks can't afford to live there anymore. But the reality of it is um, nobody really understood um, what happened in Brooklyn. The definition of success back in the day was getting the hell out of Brooklyn. And now people get into Brooklyn. So it is an amazing thing. And so neighborhood validation and justification for development and density has, has, that has been um, a major shift, uh, like a tectonic seismic shift in in where people are willing to live and where they want to live now compared to 25 years ago. It's really incredible. All right, just dropping in here to give a shout out to our partners, Athletic Greens and AG1. I started using AG1 daily last year. I wanted to boost my immunity and optimize my endurance sports performance. I was looking for an all-in-one nutritional supplement that was easy to add to my daily wellness routine. AG1 has been a game changer. It has 75 high quality vitamins, minerals, whole food superfoods, and adaptogens. And it's so easy to use. Just add one scoop to a cup of water. AG1 is a small microhabit with big benefits. It's one thing you can do every day to take great care of yourself. It contains less than one gram of sugar, no GMOs, no nasty chemicals, or artificial anything, and it tastes great. Right now, it's time to reclaim your health and arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition. To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D 
and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash Marnie on the Move. Again, that is athleticgreens.com slash Marnie on the Move to take ownership of your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. Also, shout out to our sponsors at Inside Tracker. Inside Tracker is my go-to for staying on the inside track of my health and wellness. Created by experts from Harvard, Tufts, and MIT, Inside Tracker uses the power of your body's key biomarkers, fitness data, and DNA, and DNA to reveal what you need to live healthier longer. You'll receive specific nutrition, exercise, supplement, and lifestyle recommendations providing insight that goes well beyond what you can get from generic blood work. I started using Inside Tracker in 2019 and it has been a real game changer for my health and athletic performance. Since May is Women's Health Month, Inside Tracker is unveiling an upgraded ultimate plan that includes three new hormone biomarkers that are critical to measure during a woman's reproductive and menopausal years. The new ultimate plan includes estradiol, progesterone, and TSH. And because it's Women's Health Month, Inside Tracker is not charging for these three hormone markers in May. For a limited time, Marnie on the Move listeners can get 20% off Inside Tracker's new ultimate plan. With Inside Tracker, discovering what your body needs is no longer a guessing game. Visit insidetracker.com slash Marnie on the Move. That's insidetracker.com slash Marnie on the Move. Now, back to our conversation. You started your own business, Mag Partners, in the past few years. So talk to me about how and why you made the transition from, you know, working for someone else and building developments for other people to going off on your own. Well, let me begin by saying my first love is development, even though in running the company, I was uh, a developer and operator of a portfolio of, of buildings, right? And, and um, you were CEO. CEO and in the boardroom. And, yeah. and as, you, as you go through that process in a public company, there are a couple of just looming observations and reckonings. In the public markets, there's absolutely no patience. And so as public real estate companies became REITs, you really were like quarter over quarter, what have you done for me lately? And I realized that Forest City would transform itself into a operating company with a little flair of development versus mm -hmm. a company that ended up keeping everything it built and therefore became an operating company. And so I knew that my love was in the development side. And of course, it's, it's that much more invigorating to operate something you built. But the game was changing in the world mm -hmm. of public and I realized if I stayed, I would be operating a portfolio and fighting in the boardroom and fighting with the with the, um, the folks that tracked our stock about development. Development was a dirty word. It takes too long. It's not about long-term value creation because shareholders want to know, you know, what they're going to get next quarter. And so there was this irreconcilable reality between my passion and where the public markets and real estate were moving. And I decided that I needed to follow my passion, which is to, to build. And then I realized that um, I probably could try to do it myself. Uh, that was at once terrifying, but I realized that if I was ever going to do it, I was at a time in my life where I needed to try. And so I spun off the company. I took 10 people with me. I had the full support of Forest City to their credit. They hired me back to, to help with the with Atlantic Yards and, and Barclays, and it capitalized my company so I could stand up the platform. And I did that through the pandemic. 
I am, as I said, nimble. It's one of my strengths. And so even during the pandemic, I ran across to Jersey and was the board chair and interim CEO of Matt Cali. And I did that not because I wanted to go back into the public company space, but because I know I needed to capitalize my first love, Mag Partners. And in doing that, I wasn't sure what was happening to the markets and how long it would take to put our buildings into the ground. And so my pandemic plan was to run a public company through Mag Partners, not as an individual, and use the at the public company to keep MAG partners afloat and keep my team together. So, you know, that that sort of loyalty to and commitment to the passion that, that the 10 of us created and doing it through the pandemic and then, you know, turned over the baton to the long-term CEO of that company and came back. So as an entrepreneur and as a founder, I'm super proud of it. In my business, Marnie, I think um, it's safe to say that there are a few examples, unfortunately, of women who are not part of real estate dynasties who kind of create the company and capitalize the company and stand up the company without white men or family dynasties. Up. And so I'm unfortunately in a lonely world of not many examples of it. And my great hope is for it to be more ordinary than extraordinary so that when my daughter Tess grows up, women developers who are founders and operators are everywhere. But today, that's unfortunately just not the case. And with MAG Partners, you're really trying to empower women and putting together all female teams and really kind of moving that mission forward. It's really about diversity across the board because yes, it's about women. And and I've always had a large concentration of women. I think women make amazing developers. And I have a philosophy around why, which is to stand up our lives. We we need to collaborate and depend on other people. And we know that, you know, whether you're a partner, a mother, um, a wife, or whatever it is, you know, you know, the power of connection and collaboration. And um, there's no ego in that for a lot of us because we understand it's, it comes down to our ability to thrive. And that's what development about being the head of a, of, a, of a symphony and bringing all these people together and figuring out how to make everybody work together. Um, and so it's it's actually very much in line with, I think, what drives professional women. So I knew that. But at the same time, we're going into communities where we need to look like the people we build for. Right. And that's not the case. And so part of my quest now that I have the ability to assemble my team and to go to places where I think we can make a difference, I want our team to look as diverse as the cities we build in. And that's a very important um, core value of that partners. As a woman, what was the landscape like when you first started and how has it changed? It's a great question. I mean, there's no magic elixir because everybody wants to know, like, what was your formula and can I try yeah. to duplicating it works? And I think a lot of it is luck and hard work. And the things that stand out to me are one is about me personally and the other is about the good fortune I had with the people around me. The first was I never got that memo, that email that said, you're a woman, be intimidated, especially when you're at a table with a bunch of men. It just never got to my inbox. And I think the reason for that is I knew I had a job. I took my job very seriously and I always knew what I needed to know. And I spoke when I needed to speak and I acted when I needed to act and I I just felt like I was going to be as good as the person next to me, man or woman. And I was, I was ready for it. And I knew if I was at the table, I needed to have a role. I had no interest in being at a table if I didn't have a role. And as I got more responsibility, I took the, the people start to recognize you're in charge and the world kind of does conform if you're, if you are empowered. So the external realities is that for Bruce Ratner, it was the best man or a woman for the job, and he ran a meritocracy. And so in a, in a business where you eat what you kill, I was able to be judged on my performance and what I delivered 
my productivity, my team building, and my ability to, to create value. And the more I did that, the more responsibility I got. And I will lastly say to you, I never, ever had my eye on the corner office. And that's probably why I ended up there. Yeah. Because when Bruce said to me, you need to run this company, I thought, no, I have the best job. Being your wingman is the best job of all. And it actually is true. But in reality, I said, what am I doing for the industry if I don't rise to the occasion and accept the offer for me to run this company that was very much a cult of personality based on Bruce C. Ratner. Right. If there were articles, was his name. And somewhere in the bottom of the article, it would say Forest City. And stepping into Bruce Ratner's shoes by far was the hardest thing I've ever done in my career. And what are some big lessons that you learned from working with Bruce and Forest City Ratner that you're bringing over to MAG Partners? You know, I love that question because when we formed the company, we sat around and we said, okay, these are, this is the pile of things that represent the culture of, of the company we worked at for decades. Let's sort through it, you know, take all the good stuff and leave the, the stuff we didn't like. And so we actually crafted the culture, ideally, you know, on paper around all of the things that we loved about Forest City. And it really was this fellowship, this commitment to excellence, this, um, you know, drive for sure and desire to, to make a difference and make a dent in the built environment and a curiosity, a curiosity that Bruce fueled throughout my career. And that really is the underpinning for doing great and important things in a city like New York. And so there's always a lot of dysfunction uh, inside probably any company, but uh, you know, we functioned at Forest City through a fair amount of dysfunction and some of it was healthy and some of it was unhealthy. So we kind of unpacked it all and put together the field of dreams. And every day we try to live that field of dreams. And, you know, we are a group of people that have been together in a way like a family for a very long time. And my job now is really about making sure that that culture is protected at all costs. And so when we add team members, it's super important that culturally speaking, they fit really well with all of this desire to really, to, to, to be a collective as it were. And so I'm really proud of that. That's awesome. What's something that when you started that might've been a challenge that you maybe still have in your mind that comes up here and there, and maybe it wasn't just when you started, maybe it was just like all along in your career. Capital. Doesn't matter what the question is, the answer is money. And so um, I think, you know, frankly, you know, I I had a pretty dysfunctional childhood and we didn't necessarily always know where our lunch money was. And I think that when you're with a public company, maybe you put that part of your DNA at rest because you have a balance sheet. But starting my company, I was obsessed with the idea that you have to have the capital to do the kinds of things I want to do. I didn't want to stand up a five-story building you know, in, in the boroughs, I wanted to do the very same work and the very same work involves a lot of zeros. And so part of the reason why I partnered with L&L initially when I left for our city was I believed I needed to watch people kind of hustle for the capital. And we always had a balance sheet. And I thought like I, people said, oh, you can go out and raise the money. You, you, you have this, this incredible pipeline of work that you've done. And I think the smartest thing I did was to recognize that raising money is is critically important to to building a company no capital no company and that i was super cautious around it and i was willing to take partners with the ability to buy them out once i proved the thesis that i could do it myself and inside of two years time in the middle of the pandemic i pulled the ripcord on my partnership and i decided to go at it 100 percent on my own and, and took the company back and realized that all of the things that were necessary to raise money were in fact 
in my skill set and in the skill set of my team, and that I had the reputation, the brand, and the experience to do that. And so, capital is always on my mind, and and I think it's it gets the fact that you have uh, a group of people whose whose futures and fortunes have been placed in your care. Yeah. And the way to keep as an entrepreneur is to make sure you can capitalize your de- your your desires and your ambitions. Yeah, it's a it's a fine line between creativity and then making money and business and kind of keeping the lights on. You have this beautiful new building in Chelsea, the Ruby. The pool looks amazing. Talk to me about this project and where this vision began because I know this is new and it's all over the news and it's beautiful. Thank you for for acknowledging that. We're really proud of it because it's 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 a large building. It's 480 units of rental housing of which 30% are affordable and this is the project that is the first Mag Partners branded project. Uh, we built a lot together but a building like this takes a while. And so this has been the work of the company and now we're opening it to the market. And it's been um, it, you know, very um, beautifully embraced by uh, by the New York community. And uh, we're signing leases every day. Uh, what's special about the building? The building is really designed with condo level finishes. I mean, every detail, uh, a focus on biophilia, how we want to live post-pandemic. You know, we had the great benefit of saying, geez, if we can get this building in the ground during the pandemic, we can think about all the things we learned along the way. Yeah. You know, the, the importance of outdoor space, the fact that it's a two-tower scheme with a beautiful outdoor courtyard, the decision to put the pool outside and not make it, I mean, uh, it you know, yeah. close, like it could be the hottest pool in Chelsea. Um, that's not a rental decision often made, right? That's yeah. a Soho house. I feel like the only other building that is a rental building that I know of that has a pool is London Terrace. I mean, I'm sure there's other, I'm sure there are, it exists. It's just like in Chelsea. I mean, you know, I'm not that. No, you're right. Because for developers, it's like, how do you maximize the amenity? You make it, you know, you make it 12 months out of the year, but people don't think about it that way now because people would rather barbecue and outside hang out on the roof. And because the building's two towers, 28 stories up, you're on, you're on a perch and you're you're perched over. You're not up in the sky like Hudson Yards. Like right. you're perched over all these amazing buildings around you. So the focus on biophilia, the fact that it feels like a home, it's not a tower of power. It's two, two buildings with a courtyard in the middle. We named it after Ruby Bailey, who is a beater uh, from the fashion industry, who was never quite celebrated as she should have been of FIT fame. But, you know, again, she was an immigrant and she had a thriving beating business. And we researched it and decided that Mag Partners should really kick off a brand of buildings that are named by historical figures that are women, women who have delivered impact and change to our city. And so we have two follow-on buildings. One is the Upper East Side and one is around the corner from Ruby. And we will be introducing the names of those buildings after uh, important women in the history of New York City. And I'm really proud of that because um, it's not the, it's Ruby. And the, the estate of Ruby Bailey was so excited about this. And we started a scholarship in the name of Ruby Bailey at FIT. And we will have a cornerstone in our building named after her. So there's a lot of love, a lot of heart, and a lot of grit that went into that building. And That's again, our, our capital partners um, really voted um, as, as a sort of vote of confidence for New York City to allow us to build that building when nobody was in New York and everyone was moving out. Yeah. So you can remember things like the rent. It was a risky move. I mean, but I see risk is probably your middle name. So, 
Well, it's interesting because, you know, who knew except yeah. I'd watch people write New York City's obituary like through yeah. 9-11. And when you do that, you know, over and over again, and you really do want to bet on New York, you realize the rents are higher than anybody could have imagined. Yeah. That's not necessarily for people who need to rent apartments, but it is a sign yet again of the housing emergency in the city and how important Ruby is to the future health of our city and keeping young people living here yeah. and having well, I talked to Norma Kamali during the pandemic and we talked about real estate and she said that what was happening in New York during the pandemic was very reminiscent of what happened in New York in the 70s. And she had a lot of confidence that, you know, it was going to be this boom of artists and new people coming to the city and old people leaving and that we were going to come back in a new and different way. So I, I, I didn't leave. I'm going down with the Titanic, but the Titanic didn't Let go down. This, Norma, Kamali, I, yeah. Norma Kamali was my go-to fashion icon in the 80s and 90s. And now she happens to be the partner of my real estate rabbi, oh, Marty. That's and her, her partner is such an outsized figure in my career. It's crazy. So I don't know Norma. I've met her, but I know, I mean, I, I loved her back in the day. Yeah. And now Marty, Marty is an amazing man. They're, they're an incredible couple. And I love, they're so young in their thinking because yeah. so many people, and it really divided by age. A lot of people who had the hardest time thinking about New York coming back were the people who had left to go live outside the city and didn't imagine themselves ever coming back from Florida. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> people that stood up the, the mission. Yeah. Well, we, we, we survived. We thrived. We're here. And speaking of really interesting developments that you're building and pioneering, you're also working on something with, with Kevin Plank and Under Armour in Baltimore. Talk to me a little bit about that because, you know, a lot of what you've done is here in New York City and New York. So why Baltimore and how did you connect with Kevin? So Kevin was my 8 a.m. breakfast in Midtown today. I like to say that to do great buildings, you really need great partners. It's very important, like who you hitch your star to and and who you end up aligning your, your, your values and your ambitions to. And so Kevin Plank... Um, invited me to come to Baltimore two years ago in February to look at this massive 235-acre project, which he is really the visionary for. And he and Goldman Sachs had taken down a lot of land on the south side of 95, and they put 1 million square feet of, of, of buildings into construction during the pandemic. And they were all coming online, and they needed to be leased. And the, and this, the project needed a brand and a story. And of course, he's one of the great brand builders yes. universe. And I realized I could do what I do. He does what he does. We could do it together. Goldman Sachs is an incredible partner as well. And that this might be one of those projects where it's a once in a generational opportunity to deliver impact and change to a city that deserves it. And we checked Baltimore out for more than a year and came to the conclusion that it's it's a great city. It's a gritty city, has a lot of what like Brooklyn has. Yes. And it's apologizing for itself. It's a place people love to, 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 to live and work and play. And so we fell in love with Baltimore. We fell in love with the real estate. It's extremely, extremely compelling. The dirt is good. The challenges run far and wide, but as they do, you know, with every yeah. project. So we're, we're having a lot of fun. It's, it's really like ingesting an elephant. It's a very, very big project. <laughs> oh <my God>. <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah. and there's a lot to do, but we're having a lot of fun and we we rebranded it uh, Baltimore Peninsula. Um, Kevin is really a great convener and nobody, nobody is a cheerleader for Baltimore better than Kevin Plank. Yeah. He chose to grow his business there when he could have brought it anywhere, right? And so my sort of pinky swear with Kevin Plank is 
I'll do the real, real estate and that he will be the great convener. So he is, as Dan Gilbert is to Detroit, Kevin Plank is to Baltimore. And he has just an just immeasurable amount of passion for Baltimore and for making Baltimore a better place and that rising tides rise all boats. He has personally funded a community benefits agreement that is more significant and more bona fide than any I've seen in my career. And again, that, that really goes to his commitment to the city of Baltimore. And this project's success will not be defined as to what's built in the footprint, but really how the benefits of what gets built here inures yeah. to the community surrounding uh, Baltimore Peninsula. And he's building a brand new headquarters building right next door. And so we are partners in a way that I think is going to be super uh, compelling as we kind of unfold the story of Baltimore Peninsula over the next couple of years. It could be a decade of my work in the making just because it's 14 million total square feet. While you're deeply immersed in this project, what's next for you? So I love New York. Yeah. Um, New York's exceedingly difficult to operate in as, as a business environment for developers. And a lot of that may have to do with the complicated relationship that developers have had with the city. But as a, like a next generation developer, we come wanting to make the city better. We want to build affordable housing. We want to improve the sky plane and the ground plane. We want to just contribute, and most of us, in ways that are positive. It's just so difficult, so challenging, and so unappreciated in so many places. It's nice to have a mayor that has uh, at least warm feelings toward the real estate community. There's so much divisiveness in politics, mm-hmm. and it impacts our ability to do what we do in New York City. So for example, there's no program presently to allow for the construction of rental housing that will produce um, affordable housing in the city in a way that housing crisis. That's deeply frustrating to me. You go to Baltimore and the answer is not, it's not no, it's, it's yes, but please don't disappoint us. Please make sure we have a voice. Please follow through with what you commit to. In New York today, I feel like the answer is no, out of the gate. Yeah. Then you have to walk and convince people of why. So change is really hard in New York today. If you go to a place like Baltimore, it's a little schizophrenic. Because yeah. I'd say the challenges in Baltimore are not small, but the willingness and the passion to improve the city is universally agreed upon. It's just maybe everybody's definition of that is different. Yeah. But change in you know, it's just not a very popular construct for a lot of folks. So with that in mind, I would like the future of my business to continue to be focused on the New York metro area. I believe conversions, when we look at what's happening with the office market, this is not going to change. This is not a reversible situation where you know pre-war buildings that are antiquated um, offenders of the environment and climate are ever gonna be back in mode again. And so we have a mandate really to say with um, the size of New York City's office market, 400 million square feet, we have got to figure out the 20 to 30% of the bottom of the rung that needs to get reconstituted as as housing yeah. and not flat, you know? So, so there's a will to do that, but I think it's, it's an enormous headbanger. It's a mind-bendingly complicated zoning matter, regulatory acts matter. But I want to put the time into it because I think number one, the city deserves um, that time and that attention and the city will be better for it if we figure it out. But this is one of those long crawls because I think yeah. the answers are or immediate, but that's something I'd like to see my company be part of as we build our pipeline in the future. So long crawl, like next five years or next like 15, both. 
for the next five. I think we're going to go into a period of time where there'll be inertial forces and a chilling effect that takes place in development where people won't be able to get a lot done, whether it's because of the credit markets, um, the capital markets generally, or the lack of, of programs to induce developers to do things. And then everybody will kind of get that 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 blinding flash of the obvious and say, what are we going to do about it? And then the politics together with the business community and we'll come up with some solutions. I don't feel like that's going to happen over the next year. Yeah. Sad, we jaded, and I think it's going to take more time than that. Yeah. But hopefully a five-year horizon will produce some consensus around how we can improve the city by building more housing. All things in New York City, you're super busy. You're running around, literally. You know, how do you stay healthy and fit? Because I know that nobody could do what you do without having some kind of exercise routine, wellness routine, and how has it evolved and changed over the years? Well, I should start by telling you that I, back in the in the 90s, used to take aerobics classes because they were quick and fun and the music, usually the tracks were good and I was into it. And a lot of times I'd show up in the class would absolutely be terrible. I was a New York sports club uh, member and I said, this is crazy. I can't afford to be part of a fitness class that doesn't like raise my heart rate and get me excited. So I got certified. And all through my career, I, I don't think you and I talked about this, oh, but yeah. <laughs> in the 90s, I was uh, an aerobics instructor. I was the sort of secret weapon sub because I couldn't commit to any classes other than like 6 a.m. in the morning or 7.30 at night. But they always called me when, you know, the class needed a substitute teacher. So I had my morning, early morning gig and my late morning gig because I knew I could get there. And then every once in a while, usually at least once or twice a week, I get called in for the, you know, the 65 angry people that were waiting for their aerobics instructor who didn't show up, but then we're talking about, you know, body packs, you know, the mic being on the, doing the step classes. And I kept myself fit, got paid for my fitness, was always in control of the class to make sure that it was satisfactory and had a ton of fun being this sort of altered personality when I wasn't, you know, in a, in a conference room, I was in an aerobic studio. And that was really for the, for the nineties, how I kept myself fit and sane. Yep. And, it, you know, I then had to leverage off of that, that 10 years of great fitness when I started to have children. And that became really complicated because it's really, it was really hard for me to have a job to raise my children and be present and also to stay um, fit. But um, I let my you know, I let myself off the hook more than I usually would have for the childbearing years, but always kept kept it under control. And then it's just great to be in a place now where um, I know what exercise does for me, which is keeps my head clear and my body in shape. And it, it just, you know, it allows me to up my game. And so I have different preferences now at this part of my life, you know, in terms of what I enjoy. So I, you know, I used to run and I now really... I, just lean into Pilates and uh, resistance training where I'm using my own body to to create strength I need Mm -hmm. for life. And I will jog, but I don't go out and run like you do. Uh Uh, I, I, I do have to say it is the most efficient way to exercise. So I'm always drawn to it. I just don't enjoy it as much anymore as my body speaks to me. So I'm much more um, keen on really long walks or jogs. And I would uh, every day take Pilates, you know, if, if time permits it, I will do an hour of push-ups, sit-ups, strength training, and just clearing my head. And um, that's my formula and it works for me. And how do you find the time? Do you put it on your schedule or are you just like, is it a priority? 
So that, that so it's interesting because Brooklyn, you know, after the pandemic, everybody stopped getting up really early, and I yeah. do need to be, I need the discipline of a class. Usually, um, when I when I'm when I'm out at my house in the North Fork, uh, there are no classes there, so I have a reformer machine, I have a Peloton, and I have the Peloton app, which allows me to kind of keep up with it. But during the week in Brooklyn, I go to Pure Bar, and they have 6.30 classes again, but like for, for a long time, those classes went by the wayside. Mm-hmm. So I am a huge believer for me, I need to do it in the morning, because every bit of every hour of every day conspires against me yes. as I get more and my, my, my schedule gets away from me. So I will do everything I can to preserve the morning. And I feel so good. And, you know, the morning is really your friend. We know this, if you can get yourself up and I happen to like the night. So I like the night and I understand the morning. So I force my exercise in the morning because I know how empowering it is for me. And usually if it's like seven 30 at night, there's a 50, 50 chance I'm just going to bag it. Yeah. I mean, I have a similar, I've currently, I'm experiencing, even though I'm super dedicated and driven to all the workouts and everything, and I'm not a pro athlete, but I train like I am, I've missed every single swim for the last two weeks, and that would be six swims. And it's just, you know, I'm not a morning person. I am a night owl. And in the morning, I get a lot of work done, like 6 a.m. I'm sending emails, drinking coffee, walking dogs, all those things, but I'm definitely not working out. Like that is not – but what I'm realizing is that I'm going to need to find a way to do that because as I get into my day, like you said, I just, it's just, I just don't have the energy. I'm not in the mood. I'm, I'm in my groove, you know, I'm, I'm working and you know, it's very disruptive to leave your work, go to the gym. It's not just the hour workout, right? It's like the 40 minutes of transition. And so I feel like during the pandemic, it was fine. And even before the pandemic, somehow I did it all. But right now, I'm really finding it challenging. But I'm, and one of the things, you know, I always like beat myself up about not doing the workouts. I just have to like let it go and move forward. I just have to have it in my calendar. And I can't think about it. You know, I don't know. Well, you know what I always say? Like, what yeah. else are you doing? Six six thirty in the morning, Nothing. you know? Yeah. Hard to make excuses. So when I used to teach those classes, what I found, yeah warriors go to those classes not that there are warriors at 4 p.m and 6 p.m but you know what the people that have figured it out are so committed because yeah. the only thing you're doing is probably sleeping yeah. so you're you're making a decision and then you just yeah. I, I find the control over my day erodes as my day unfolds and so if i take control of it in the morning i'm happiest because i do the same thing i beat myself up i keep track <laughs> Yeah. I don't let myself off the hook if I don't do it. And that's probably really important and it's hard to talk ourselves out of it because that's what keeps us coming back. Yes. And in addition to exercise and working out, what do you do for like day-to-day wellness? Like, are you super healthy? Like, do you have go-to routines, like saunas, stuff like that? So my wellness is also just about being, you know, being presentable and appropriate and just feeling like, you know, now I have age. I have age working against me. Like I'm really, I feel like I'm on top of my game and I'm in a place where, you know, in your fifties, you just get so down with like what your calling is and your children are old, but you can fend for themselves and you can start craft your, not just your days, but the life you want to live going forward. And so having economic stability and having my children in a place where, where they're, you know, you give them roots and you give them wings and they're at the part where they're, they're, they're figuring out their wings. So I have a lot more control. And so I can take care of my, uh, my body. I can take care of my mind. I do, I do the calm app. I think calm has come 
really far. Uh, yeah. I love things. I love to be able to walk on the beach. So in the North Fork, which is like, again, it's the anti-Hamptons. It's it's where people go to kind of get away mm-hmm. and a great food movement there, but you're not going to run into people you're at meetings with all week. And yeah. that was a must must have for me and I'm on the water so I have an unbelievable beach with my dogs that I love and the calm app is one of these things where they've gone from just sitting and meditating to walking down the beach and listening to someone's story mm-hmm. about how they their anxiety or they manage challenges in their life and so I uh I like podcasts but the calm app in the morning serves me That's and so I try to to start with it and it's probably a fairly commoditized product but for someone like me like I'm not a deep meditator but it's super accessible for me and they have everything from morning meditations to bedtime stories if you can't sleep and I don't have a problem sleeping because I don't sleep enough but like if you if you couldn't sleep they Matthew McConaughey will like read you a bedtime story oh wow and I've got to check that out yeah <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah. so awesome. um and just staying on top of um you know, facials and I have a sauna in my home and just recognizing the things that are good for us. And then I happen to, to really eat well, just because I like healthy foods, mm-hmm. but I'm not, a, I mean, I'm not a vegetarian. I do gravitate toward, toward fish and I love vegetables and I, I'm not, I don't have a sweet tooth. So, you know, I do, I don't eat like a bird though. So I, 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 what I do is I, I eat when I eat. So I don't snack. I eat two meals a day and I take those meals very seriously, but I'm not one of habitual snackers so when I eat I eat serious quantities because I'm hungry yeah that's cool and you mentioned your children so you have three children and three dogs yes how (laughs) the hell do you do it holy cow (laughs) that's incredible the children is not rational right somehow I just thought I was meant to have three children and I have two boys and I have a girl it wasn't about getting the girl it was about this idea that there was something about um, my, my steady state of being that I felt like I was supposed to be the mother of three children. And I had the great blessing of being able to have three children and, um, I have three children. So, uh, they are 25, 23 and 19. So and one two of boys them is going to be on the podcast. Devin. Devin is a force of nature. You will learn on the podcast all about my oldest son, Devin, who is not in the real estate business, but has figured out the intersection of real estate, fashion, and sustainability. That's just a teaser. And you'll, you'll hear yes. more about it with very proud of Devin. My middle, my middle child, Aiden, is um, living in the metaverse, cryptocurrency, Ethereum, trades, NFTs, has an unbelievable ARCnet collection, and is probably one of these young uh, individuals who will do everything he can not to work in an office <laughs> and won't, won't work for other awesome. people and will you know, find his future through innovation and be a change maker and a very different personality than Devin, which is the miracle of genetics and DNA, um, a soft soul with a deep intellect and extremely sensitive to the world around him. And then there's Tess. You don't mess with Tess. Tess is um, my daughter. I would say she's an unbroken me. Uh, she has um, lots of passion and uh, empathy and um, is just this amazing, amazing gift for, for for us and our family. I just got back from a, a weekend away with her. She studies at Emory. She's um, going to change the world through psychotherapy or or psychology and research, uh, particularly into children and family structures. And at 19, this has become a passion for her. But she has so many things she loves to do. She's in the Smoky Mountains right now she's a scuba diver she speaks two languages and she's just she's a real person and she really gets it and uh really just uh, brings great joy to her mother 
That's amazing. Amazing. And tell me about your dogs because I know you're a dog lover and you have such interesting dogs, your fur babies. (laughs) Yes. So so we started with two boxers when the kids were were young and boxers are super loyal to their families. One of them had a screw loose. And so we had kind of a Cassius, the boxer who was a male boxer when we moved to Brooklyn, uh, just could not could not handle the the city living. Like every time somebody walked past the brownstone, it was a threat to the family. So boxers, I saw the, 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 the sensitive, loving, calm female boxer, and then Cassius, who really just was not was not well, and you know from from the puppy just super anxious. And so we loved boxers and um, they both passed, but we, they were a lot to manage. And along the way we decided, let's get, let's get a third. So we got a Shih Tzu named Yoshi. And when Tess decided at the young age of, of, of four, that she needed to have this fluffy dog, even though we had boxers, the boys absolutely revolted and said, we're not getting one of these prissy dogs. And we talked them into it, but they said they had to name the dog. And so she's a fluffy female Yoshi. And it goes back to Mario and Yoshi, the te- you know, the, the video game back in the day. So Yoshi's now uh, pushing 16 and she prances down St. John's Place like she owns it. And then there's the divorce dog. Which during uh, my, my divorce, it was very hard on Tess. And so I got a rescue dog, a, a, a Chihuahua and Jack Russell combination um, that got shipped up from the South. And she's a complicated, uh, lovable mutt. And her name is Olive. And then my life partner has uh, a German short hair pointer that is uh, all chocolate and comes from Germany. And so we are running with three dogs and collectively five children in some combination. And the dogs just, all the dogs keep it real. They keep it fun. (laughs) Bring us back to the basics about what really matters. Yeah, I love dogs, obviously. I have two. And yeah, there's always some drama with them, but they're amazing animals that keep it real. And uh, the unconditional love, because let's be clear, they're always going to love you and they're always going to be loyal to you. And there's something really humbling and remarkable and comforting about that reality. Rapid fire questions and we're wrapping up. Favorite book or book that you're reading right now? So forever in a day, it's been The Angle of Repose by Wallace Stegner. Just, you know, the great the great novel of the 70s about just sloping surfaces, shifting and finding a center and recognizing the center will hold. So that book's very powerful for me. And, um, you know, I dabble. I read things with Tess. Um, you know, the 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 Lucy Barton stories that were Elizabeth Stout. I don't know if you read them, but a collection of books that I really enjoy. So I tend to, I tend to read lighter fare because it takes my mind off of all the heaviness and, and um, the work that I do every day. So it's really important always to have an open book. And right now I'm, I'm reading Run by Ann Patchett. Second question. What are you watching? I only commit to one show at a time because it gets like a uh, and I do, I you know, I do like to balance it with podcasts. And I'm on the board of public radio, so you know, I love a whole host of great podcasts. And I'm excited to add yours to my to my list of faves. Uh, I am deep into Yellowstone, and I've I've just sucked it dry. It's like the succession of the Midwest. I've read, you know, I, I mean, I've listened to 1883, 1923 in Yellowstone. I'm like now a little fed up. Um, I'll be fine when they come out with the new episodes, but I feel like I've been whipsawed into the three different, you know, ep- the three different yes. 
lives of Taylor Sheridan. And I'm starting to see formulae and things that seem like it's not as, it's not, it's not, I, the romance is, is, is waning a little bit, yes. but I, I was really into it. Like the Yellowstone, the first part of it was, was amazing. Yeah. And then I was a big succession fan. I just find it's, um, it's therapeutic <laughs> to watch all of that dysfunction. And I then, um, and then Tess and I, just because she's an old soul, we love, love, love to throw on Grace and Frankie just because there's nothing cute than watching your daughter like wax lyrical over two old women coming up with vibrators as a business model. Yeah. <laughs> Being able to laugh about it. So which is it's just so great to watch Tess watch it and then to watch it with her. And we yeah. laugh silly and fairly mindless. And um, we really enjoy it. Awesome. Favorite restaurant in New York City? So I have to say, I'm really curious about restaurants. So I wouldn't say that I have any more than the favorite in my neighborhood, which is Convivium, which is a place on Fifth Avenue that we can always tuck into. And it's sweet and it's it's Italian and they're really good people and they always give us a table. Awesome. And that makes it a really good meal when you have good company. Yes. And favorite workout apparel and shoes. You know that I'm going to talk about my Under Armour partnership and the fact that I am on brand. Yes. I wear slippers. Slip speeds are amazing because you can run in them, but then you can fold the back down and make it a mule and you can slip into it on the way to Pilates. And that's the great vision of Kevin Plank, but the slip speeds are really worth looking at. They're made to not slip on the basketball court. So when you're on a basketball court, you hear the squeaking more than anything, right? right? He invented a sneaker that Steph Curry wears and there's no squeaking anymore, but it also has a heel that flips down so that you can slip into it. I need to get those because I wear my shoes like that without having the slip part to walk my dogs. And that's what he said about his daughter. Yeah. So he, he said one of the reasons he did it is he looked at his daughter's sneakers and they're all crushed in the back because yeah. we all do it. And so those are my sneakers. And then I'd say that Under Armour has a female CEO just as of last week. Yes. Stephanie, I think, is going to do wonders for their line. They're a performance line, but I've been harping on this idea that post-pandemic, the COVID collection that we all want is leisure wear that's cozy, comfortable, and accessible, even if we're not performing. Right. And I think Under Armour could do just wondrous things with, you know, creating a leisure line for women mm-hmm. that's as that's as compelling as their performance line. So yeah. I'm with my partner standing shoulder to shoulder wearing his his brand. Okay, fashion designer or brand. I am not a fashion whore in the sense that I'm like loyal to just one type of fashion. I can tell you certain brands I do really well with. So Prada is, you know, very, very good to me. Frame is good to me in my post. Um, Nina Lotin is also really nice because they're wearing things that that are comfortable. And when I can be comfortable and work a really hard, long day, it feels like I have Gone are the days where my feet are uncomfortable, my waistline's too tight, and I feel like I'm, you know, wrapped up in, like a sausage. And so I'm all about. I love what the what the pandemic did for just level setting on fashion and allowing people in businesses like mine to show up as we are with a pair of jeans and a, and a blazer or a nice blouse. That has been the most welcoming thing. And as an entrepreneur and a founder, you can do that now. Yeah. And even I mean. Capital, like when Goldman Sachs gets rid of the ties and they're all wearing, you know, casual Friday garb, it's yeah. very, very inviting and permissive for those of us that are willing to take that a little further. And so I don't know if I'll ever wear the stilettos in my closet that I will bequeath to Tess yeah. or that the, the, the dresses will make it into my wardrobe again. But I'm really excited about where fashion is going in business for yeah. women like you. Yeah. I mean, I live in jeans, jeans and like, you know, I should wear, I, I've got leveled up sneakers, the converse with the platform. Always a platform. 
Yeah. I mean, I've got to be a little taller. It just makes me feel good. Now, if you want to go like really to the high end, like Roger Rivera has these amazing chunky loafers that are, they're an investment, but they're so smart and so comfortable. And so what I do is I spend up on the things that like my bags and my shoes that are comfortable and practical, they're going to stay with me for life. I do that too. That's my jam. I will buy cheap, inexpensive clothing and I don't care. Like we were doing run the runway. I'll go to Zara. I love that stuff. But when it comes to bags and shoes, that's a good investment. <laughs> All of their vegan leather, which it feels so soft now and it's, it just wears so nicely. The only thing you have to remember is that if you buy like a red pair of vegan leather pants, yeah. which are quite nice, you can't put them next to something of a different color that's right. not vegan because apparently it bleeds off. Yeah. And I really appreciate someone telling me that because I would have ruined a lot of really nice clothing had I not known. Yeah, well, I've like sat on my couch in like new denim jeans and the couch has turned a different color. So I understand. Last question, podcast. What are you listening to? I know you said you listen to a lot. So, and it can't be my podcast. What's one that's like kind of your fa- your go-to? One of your go-tos. I'll give you three. Yes, sex and money. Okay. That's really good. I'll have to it's either it. about death, sex, or money. Okay. Like who doesn't want to talk about those, those are, three things? Yeah. That's a really fun one. Um, Anna Sales. And then I love This American Life. Yes. I usually listen to The Daily every day because I find they're brilliant at just condensing whatever's going on into 20 minutes in a way yeah. that makes me think about it long after the, the podcast's over. And finally, Hidden Brain. I love Hidden Brain. Yes. So those are my favorites. This has been so great. You've made it so easy and it's been so fun. And I think that I have Devin to thank for yet again for the collection of people that he keeps close in his life for which I have been the beneficiary of because he has kept me close to Lori and he has helped me get to know you. And I just, first of all, thank you for your interest in getting to know me. And I hope it won't be the last time that we have an encounter and an ability to talk about really Yes, we need to do something else. But this has been amazing. Thank you. Thanks again for tuning in to Marnie on the Move. If you like what you hear, leave us a five-star review in Apple Podcasts. Follow us on social at Marnie on the Move for Facebook and Instagram and Marnie Salop on Twitter. Head over to our website, MarnieOnTheMove.com for more info on this episode, links in the show notes, And of course, sign up for our quarterly newsletter, The Download, to get updates, deals, giveaways, and information on future events for 2019. I want to hear from you. Email me, marnieonthemove1 at gmail.com. And let me know what you're enjoying, what you want to hear more of. If you have questions for our guests, just reach out.